0: sahana bhavato sahana bhunakto sah viryam karavahai tejasvina vadhitam astu om shanti 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 om may the lord protect us both the teacher and the taught together may the lord give us the results of our of knowledge May we attain vigor together. Let what we know, let what we study be invigorating, illuminating. May we not cavil at each other. Om, peace, peace, peace. So in the Katopanishad, we are um, on. The third section of the second chapter, which is the the last section of the whole Upanishad. The Upanishad has six sections divided into two chapters of three sections each. Um, In this last section, Yama, the Lord of Death, who is the teacher, is teaching the student, who is the young boy, Nachiketa, And he is wrapping up, sort of uh, summarizing the entire teaching, what is Brahman, the nature of the ultimate reality, and how we realize it. So that's what's going on. The process of realizing. All of these things have been touched upon earlier. But again he is. um he's summarizing for our benefit. Before he closes. How we realize it. And finally also he will talk about the results. Of this enlightenment or realization. Alright. Um, so. We are on verse number. I think we are on verse number. 9, if I'm not wrong, verse number 9. Let me chant the verse first, and then we will look at the translation. I'll read out the English translation from Swami Gambhiranandaji's Uh, Translation. The form of Brahman does not exist within the range of vision. Nobody sees him with the eye. When this self is revealed through deliberation, it is realized by the intellect, the ruler of the mind that resides in the heart. Those who know this become immortal. All right. Let's go into this. Shankaracharya, in his commentary, introduces the verse with these words, How do you speak about seeing the Atman? Yes, I understand seeing does not mean actually seeing it with the eyes, but it means knowing. But how do you know the Atman when you have expended so much energy in saying that it's unknowable? You can't, uh, it is not an object of the senses, it's, um, it's not something that can be expressed in language, it's not something that can be conceived, captured by concepts. So, how do you know it at all? Is it knowable? How and then here he says, uh, It is not something that is within the limits of our vision, it's not that it's you know very far away so that with the telescope we can see it, or it's very small with a particularly powerful electron microscope, we can see the Atman. No, it's not within the range of vision. So not by the eyes is it ever seen by anybody. Here the eyes, by the eyes, uh, we take the entire group of sense organs and any instruments which extend the power of the sense organs. So the Atman, the self, uh, is not only not seeable uh, you can't hear it smell it taste it touch it nor do any of the uh, you know the extremely sensitive instruments which we have designed um, they cannot sense they cannot detect the atman it's not an object uh, for uh, you know, it cannot be objectified by the senses then how is it known you know, that's our question yes we understand it's not objectifiable then how is it known It is known as the very subject itself as the real I. But how? Uh, The questioner knows this. It's been told many times, it's your nature, you are Brahman. Yes, but how do I know myself as Brahman? And then uh, he mentions this. Rida, Manisha, Manasa, So literally it means, Rida means in the heart. Um, In the heart here means in the mind or the intellect. And the word he uses here is Manisha. Um, it's a common word in uh, Indian, in Sanskrit, and also in Indian languages. Our girls have the name Manisha sometimes in uh, India. Manisha. So here Manisha uh, is by the intellect, and Shankaracharya gives a very subtle definition of this. Uh, I'll read out Gambhiranji's comment here, and then I will explain. So I mean Gambhiranji is. Um, translation of the Upanishad and Shankara's commentary, he adds a footnote. What does it mean, Manisha, by the intellect? What does it mean? In the footnote, Gambhiranji says, the intellect is the ruler, dissuading the mind from its occupation with objects. The identity of the self and Brahman taught in the Upanishads is confirmed by manana, deliberation, deliberation. Then in the pure intellect, unoccupied with objects, arises the conviction, I am Brahman, from the Upanishadic text, that thou art. Brahman becomes fully revealed to that convinced intellect. Now it's some pretty subtle stuff is going on here. Shankaracharya also says here in his commentary, this is at the very heart of what we call enlightenment, what's going on here. Um, So what's going on here is, the, um, to put it very simply, before I explain, Sri Ramakrishna, he, his teaching about this is, you know, the issue is that it cannot be known by the mind. Yes, it cannot be known by the mind. But Sri Ramakrishna says, gochar. it can be known by the purified mind. It can be known by the purified mind. It can be realized by the purified mind. But what do you mean by the purified mind? What exactly is the purified mind? Well, that depends on the impurities. What kind of impurities are there? And what are the methods of purification? And what will be the resultant purified mind, which can become enlightened, which can realize the Atman? So the three layers of impurities, which we have discussed earlier, the, uh, the first layer is the various conditionings the desires which are there in the mind, which we have conditioned the mind through this lifetime and past lifetimes. So that is called chitta mala, the impurities of the mind. There is, um, the way to counteract these impurities of the mind is through, first of all, an ethical life. You know, just basically clean up your life, an ethical life. Second, karma yoga, not only ethical action, ethical life, but a selfless life. These two are not the same. A person can lead a life, which is moral, decent. A lot of people are decent and moral people. But they're not particularly selfless. They're good people. That's what society is mostly composed of. But if you're going to be enlightened, if you're going to be spiritual, we have to go further. Not only am I moral, not am I trying to be ethical and do the right thing, but also selfless. As far as possible, um, karma yoga, to convert our moral actions into further into selfless actions what is for the good of all. I don't want anything out of this. And I am here just to um, you know, serve or do good or worship God through my action. Karma yoga, basically. So the karma yoga is a powerful tool for purifying the mind. So first layer of impurity, desires in the mind. Sri Ramakrishna put it very directly, lust and gold. This desire for, um, you know, accumulation, wealth and power and uh, uh, sensuous ple- pleasure, lust. These two are the prime impurities of the mind and they have to be cleansed out. That's the first level. Now, after this comes the second level of impurity. The second level of impurity is the restlessness of the mind. The mind flickers. The um, uh, Arjuna says to... Krishna, in the Bhagavad Gita, when in the sixth chapter Krishna teaches him meditation, Arjuna's complaint is that it doesn't work. Chanchalam hi Krishna, The mind, O Krishna, is unstable, flickering. Now the mind has to be quietened, calmed down, and focused. How do you do that? Meditation. Um, Many words are there upasana, yoga. And uh, what kind of meditation is necessary for? Advaita Vedanta at what stage or what stages we will see next so that's the second level of practice impurity is the restlessness of the mind and restlessness can be cured by uh, meditation by calming the mind and focusing the mind then the third and final level of impurity is ignorance or um, an error so ignorance I do not know who or what I am and then there's consequent error what is the error I think I am this body, I am this person, I am this mind. It's become sort of obvious and unquestioned for me. So ignorance and error are the final, deepest, innermost layer of of impurity. And that impurity is removed by knowledge. And that knowledge is born of shravana manana nididhyasana. This is what he's referring to. Um, in the intellect, what does it, the intellect, what has it done? Each, it has to tackle each layer of that impurity. Um, it has been purified of desires. Then as Swami Gambhiranji commented, it controls the mind, dissuades the mind from running after objects. And in that um, objectless, settled mind, uh, the intellect also becomes steady. And in that intellect, says, abhikripta. That means manana. Manana means uh, having... Considered, well considered the teachings of the Upanishads. So Shravana is getting the teachings. Shravana literally means hearing. So study and hearing of the teachings. Having heard the teachings, having you know downloaded that knowledge, you consider it well. To think through it thoroughly. To deliberate upon it thoroughly. From that arises conviction. And that conviction, which comes from Manana. Manana gives you conviction. Manana means deliberation. That conviction gives rise in this still and pure intellect, um, the clarity, the, the utter change in vision. It removes the ignorance about our real nature and reveals the nature of my own nature, nature of reality to me. And this is this utter clarity, utter conviction, and this does not flicker anymore. That is called enlightenment. So impurities have to be uh, sri Ramakrishna's krishna's key is that um, yes it can be realized the atman can be realized that you are pure consciousness pure being it can be realized by the mind yeah. in spite of all that we have heard it cannot be realized by the mind sri rama krishna says manir it can be realized by the purified mind but then it question arises what is the purified mind well then we must know what are the impurities three levels of impurities uh, impure uh, desires impure mind is desires the another level of impurity is the restless mind. The final level of impurity, deepest core level of impurity is ignorance and error. In Sanskrit, agyana Adhyasa. Agyana is ignorance of our real nature. Adhyasa is error or superimposition that I am body-mind. These are removed by, by um, practices. What are the practices? To remove the desires in the mind, the conditioning of the mind is moral life, And karma yoga first starts with moral life and then karma yoga. Can't karma yoga go along with immoral life? No, it cannot. One cannot be um, unethical and be selfless at the same time. You would say, why not? Uh, Because person is unethical. We do wrong things deliberately only because we can't help it. Nobody is, uh, uh, you know, practices immorality as a a spiritual practice. Nobody steals lies, uh, uh, murders, uh, you know, out of the goodness of of their heart. It's only because terror and temptation. Either we are scared of something and we tell a lie. Mm -hmm. A child learns to tell a lie because trouble goes away magically. If mom catches you doing something wrong, did you do this? And you said, no. And the mom says, okay, good. Then, now that sounds, that's magical. <laughs> you just said no, and uh, all the scolding went away. So the child learns to tell a lie. And so when you are afraid, when we are scared, we do wrong things. When we are uh, tempted, attracted uh, by something, we can't control ourselves. We know it's wrong, we overstep the limits of uh, ethics, of the boundaries of morality. In that case, again, we do wrong things. So it's only uh, you know uh, because of uh, the uh, inability to uh, control fear or temptation that we do-, do wrong things. If a person is ethical, then the next step is selfless, karma yoga. Then the next deeper level is restlessness of the mind. So why is it a deeper level? Because without first purifying the mind of desires, one cannot control the restlessness of the mind. I've said this earlier, one yogi teaches meditation um, to a person who has come to learn meditation, control the mind, calm the mind. And then the uh, yogi tells him, well, first one must practice truth and self-control and non-violence. And that man gets bored and says, all these things I know. Tell me how to sit, how to breathe, how to withdraw the mind. Sit asana. Asana is to sit, the posture. And the yogi said, scolded him gently, saying, Black money parasan bichaoge, man shant hoga. You have got undeclared income. You know, you're trying to escape the IRS. And uh, uh, you hide, stash your cash away under the bed and put a meditation mat on top of it and sit in meditation. You think the mind is going to calm down? No. You'll always be, you feel guilty and you're afraid the tax man cometh. So uh, you cannot calm the mind down. Um, ethical life then meditation otherwise what will happen is in the midst of meditation the mind will be shaken violently uh, because of the uh, already inherent turbulences in the mind conditioning of the mind ethical life meditation meditation calms the purified mind restless but purified mind is calmed by meditation now the last layer is ignorance uh, not knowing the real nature of the self. For that, we have the teachings, Shravan, Manan, Nididhyasan. And here, the Upanishad says, well thought out the teachings, we we, we take the teachings and we think through it well, and then only um, clarity comes. Uh, Clarity dawns in the intellect at that time. So there is conviction, there is clarity, there is tremendous change in our perspective, and it is an unshakable change. So uh, that is enlightenment. Shankaracharya here, here he comments, this clarity, how does it dawn? Manasa manana rupena samyak darshanena. Samyak darshana, um, Seeing clearly. The teaching, you see it clearly. That's called clarity. How? How do you see clearly? Manana rupena. Manana means um, thinking it through. Arguing it through. Trying to see, why is it not clear to me? At which point am I getting stuck? And then you see. And then he says, Samarthito Prakashita Bhavati. The intellect, when clarity comes, when clarity dawns, Shankaracharya's uh, uh, subtle indication, what is enlightenment like? This is the intellect, Samarthita, literally it supports or backs it up or says, yes, this is how it is. Prakashita, it, literally this is, a, English for English for this would be Uh, illuminated or enlightened. Like light, you know, enlightened. Prakashita is enlightened. Um, Yes. In this way, what happens? Shankaracharya comments here, Atma Gyanatom Shakyate. Shankaracharya says, you should add to this verse, Atma can be known, can be realized. So, not realizable by the mind. The first meaning is, it is not realizable by the impure mind. Realizable by the purified mind. But the purified mind includes all these practices. Um, So this moment of clarity arises in the the intellect. If you want more details, finer details, more fine-grained analysis of this, what do you mean this clarity arises? What kind of clarity? What is it exactly? This is called Vritti, Modification of the intellect in the form I am Brahman. This, not saying I am Brahman, not like a mantra. This, just like I'm very clear, I am Sarvapriyananda now. It's a fact to me. It's not, I'm not repeating it as a mantra. It's just, I'm repeating a fact when I say I am Sarvapriyananda. It should be even more clear than that. I am Brahman. That knowledge should come. That clarity should come. How that comes, the exact mechanism of it, I will not talk about it now. I've mentioned it a few times. In Vedanta Sara. Towards the end of Vedanta there's a discussion on these there are two technical terms called um, Vritti Vyapti Phalab Vyapti. Vritti Vyapti phala Vyapti. Literally, if you translate, it won't make much sense, but I'll translate it for you. Vritti Vyapti, pervasion by the mind. Phalab Vyapti, uh, pervasion by the reflected consciousness in the mind. Uh, that's how knowledge works. And how does it apply to enlightenment, knowledge of the Atman or Brahman? Those things were discussed there at the end of Vedanta Sāra. You take a look there. Uh, The issue there was, this very question, but in a more philosophical way, this question was asked, more sophisticated way. The question was asked that some of the Upanishads say, what cannot be known by the mind, what cannot be conceived of by the mind. And yet there are other Upanishads which say that, by the mind alone, it can be realized. Now, which, which is it? How can both of them be true? You cannot conceive of it by the mind, and you can know it only by the mind. How do you resolve this uh, apparent contradiction? So that is what was done in that Vedanta Sara, with the help of those uh, sophisticated epistemological concepts. Vritti Vyapti, Phala Anyway, I will not go into that. Now, we realize ourselves and this witness consciousness, not the body, not the mind, and the witness consciousness. Then, ye vidu, he says, those who know this self, Shankaracharya says, tam atmanam brahmetad ye vidu hu. Those who know this self as Brahman, as, pure, as the infinite existence consciousness place. Amrita Bhavanti, they become immortal. What do you mean they know this Brahm- as Brahman? I know that I am Brahman. Not that Brahman exists, I am Brahman. When I realize that, Amrita Bhavanti, you become immortal. Not that even you become Im- immortal. The moment we realize that we are Brahman, Brahman is immortal. It is not born, it is, does not age, it does not die. It exists as infinite existence consciousness. So I realize that. So by the very nature of that realization, I, I realize my immortal nature, that I'm not limited in space, I'm not limited by time. Immortal literally means I'm not limited by time, that I'm, I'm not born and I do not die. I do not change in time. Let me put it this way. One, uh, It'll come a little later, but let me just tell you right now. A simple way of understanding Advaita Vedanta is um, you realize first of all we, we take it for granted or take it on faith that there is such a thing as an um, unlimited existence consciousness place. That's not enlightenment. But that we learn from the Upanishads from the texts that, that an absolute reality exists. How do you know that? I'm taking it on faith. I've been told that. I've read about it. That's one side. The other side is, I know I exist. Nobody has to tell me that. My own existence is indubitable. That's what Descartes discovered when he had this, uh, you know, uh, his uh, investigation into what can be doubted and what cannot be doubted. He found out only one thing cannot be doubted. My own existence. So my own existence is undoubted. This one undoubted existence, but the problem is, I have no doubt about my own existence, but the problem is that this existence is beset by problems. I exist, surely, but I am a limited person. I am born and I age and I die. Uh, I, my knowledge is very limited, my abilities are limited, my successes and, uh, in my life are limited, my failures in life are limited, thank God my failures are limited, it would be terrible to have unlimited failures. So. My very existence is a very limited existence, full of problems, full of sorrows, full of frustrations. So this, I exist surely, but it's a limited existence, problematic existence. And now I have been told about Brahman, problem free, you know, what what problem does Brahman have? Infinite being, infinite awareness, uh, infinite bliss, no problem at all. But That existence I am taking on faith. That Brahman such a thing is there. I am taking on faith. Because I have read read it. I have been told by spiritual masters. That some absolute reality exists. Fine. Problem free reality. Now what Vedanta does. Is to show that one indubitable. Certain existence. Which is you. Is actually this limitless uh, existence called Brahman. Let me repeat that. My own certain existence. And that infinite existence are one and the same existence. This is what we realize. Advaita Vedanta shows us step by step. It it enables us to appreciate that the one thing which I am certain about, which nobody has to teach me, I exist, takes that fact alone and shows that I exist is an infinite existence which has no problems. Problems are there at the body level. If I identify with the body, all body problems are my problems. Problems are there at the mind level. If I identify with the mind, all mind problems are my problems. But if I identify with or I see myself as that limitless self, Atman, I am Brahman, no problems. So Advaita Vedanta is to show that first, you are not the body, not the mind, you are this witness consciousness. And second, to show that this witness consciousness is the limitless Brahman. That is the teaching of uh, the Chandogya Upanishad. Which says, Tat You are that. In you are that, first of all, we have to clarify what is meant by you. If you say, if I say I am the body, then you are that. Tat will not work. Not at all. That infinite Brahman is the body? No. If I say, no, I am not the body. But I am this person. I am this mind embodied will not work that ever changing mind subject to ups and downs every moment is that brahman the absolute reality no but i am the non object pure subject witness consciousness that is brahman that is much easier it will work that that statement that teaching will is much easier to understand in hindi they say thik, thik, it will it will um, be set properly that teaching uh, To say that you are limitless. Clearly the body is not limitless. It's right here. Where is it? The whole universe is vast. The body is tiny. The universe is long-lived. Body is short-lived. The body is vulnerable. Little COVID can destroy it and cause a lot of suffering. Mind is even more vulnerable. Even more changeable. But the consciousness to which the body-mind appears is that limited. Does that grow old? Does, is that, does that grow up, go through ups and downs? Unhappiness and frustration? No. Not as a matter of stipulation, not as a rhetoric, but I come to see that that's so. That is Brahman. That's what uh, uh, Vedanta wants to tell us. And if you realize that, this very Atman, the self as Brahman, is, he says, uh, Amrita Bhavanti. You become immortal. Become immortal figuratively only. You realize you always were immortal. Atman is Brahman. Often Advaita Vedanta, if you, in English summarized as Atman is Brahman. Just a couple of days back, somebody told me. um, Oh yes, I know who it was. He said to me, he's a techie. He said to me, do you know that uh, the founder of that AI company, the ChatGPT uh, Sam Altman or something? So somebody asked him in a question on his Twitter, I think. Tell us something that you believe that others don't, that's not generally believed, generally accepted or known. And it seems, he replied on Twitter, it must be, must be on his Twitter. He replied, Atman is Brahman. I believe that. <laughs> I wonder if he, it sounds like a non-dualist an Advaitin. Now, how does this moment of enlightenment arise? When I realize Atman is Brahman. Um, Shankaracharya asks this question when we in his lead into the next verse. Iti yoga Shankaracharya says, this moment of enlightenment, although the exact words he uses are more uh, profound than that, uh, in the heart, This intellect, which shines with the clarity, I am Brahman, how does that arise? For that purpose, he says, now yoga is being taught. Meditation is being taught. But now the next two verses, 10th and 11th verse, are teachings of meditation. Yogic meditation, in order to attain this realization. All right, now we'll see. 10th verse. Yada Panchavatishthante Gyanani Manasasaha English translation is When the five senses of knowledge come to rest together with the mind and the intellect too does not function that state they call the highest. Just before we go into it, when you say that state they call the highest, what is that state? That Samadhi. He's talking about Samadhi here. So Samadhi is the highest. Uh, Gambiranji Maharaj here, he adds an important note. Samadhi is not the highest. Mm-hmm. It helps you to attain the highest, which is realization that you are Brahman. So, Gambhiranji writes here, that state of yoga, which is Samadhi, is called the highest because it leads to the highest goal. What is the highest goal? Realization. Aham Brahmasmi. I am Brahman. What helps there? Samadhi helps there. It's a powerful help. Very powerful help. So what is that? Samadhi and how do you attain it? That is given here. The teaching on meditation is given here. Whole process is not given. Um, what we are trying to do in meditation, that's pointed out. That's taught here. Basically the culmination of meditation, the The deepest meditation, description of that is pointed out here. He says, first of all, Yada Panchavatishthante Gyanani. Here, Gyanani means the five senses of knowledge. Gyanandriyani in Sanskrit. The five um, sense organs. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. The five sense organs. They are stilled. Then, Manasasa, the mind is stilled. Then the intellect becomes still. And then he straight up says, that is called the highest state. What is meant here? I have also said this earlier. One sadhu, uh, he, his instructions for this, uh, much more simple, more like a, a sergeant in a boot camp. Uh, he, he barked out to the meditators, Hilomat. Hilomat means don't don't move, don't shake. So they're all sitting rigid, straight. Bolomat, don't speak. Then third, sochomat, don't sink. From outer stillness, to inner stillness and inner innermost stillness. Basically stillness. Stillness, um, The mind is so delicate, it has been compared to a bowl brim full of water. Filled to the brim with water. If you're holding such a bowl, you have to be so careful not to spill a single drop. So first of all, you have to be very still. One thing which disturbs the mind immediately is movement of the body. So first, still the body, sit still. That's why sitting is good for meditation. There is walking meditation, I know, but sitting meditation is the best. Then the senses have to be quietened. Now, senses have to be quietened means that's why eyes are closed or half closed because fully closed sends a message to the mind that it's okay to fall asleep because that's the mind thinks that closing the eyes means that it's time to go to sleep. So half closed or looking down there um, at the mat or... um, yeah or closed so close the eyes do not hear so a quiet environment is highly recommended and then smell taste touch a neutral environment so that the senses are not uh, they don't kick into action our mind is mostly engaged with processing sense inputs so what the mind does is a lot of data is flowing in through the senses I don't know, neuroscience has revealed this, you know, like a lot of our uh, neuronal activity is concerned with the visual cortex, for example. That's why closing the eyes is very important. Not that we are seeing anything very uh, useful or important. As far as spiritual life is concerned, there's not much we can see in the world which is of any particular use to us in spiritual life. So close the eyes. Now, one might uh, say that, but you can't really, you know, you can even plug your ears but then the senses, touch, for example, or smell, taste. What do you have to do? Do you have to go into what is called a sensory deprivation tank? So where all the five senses are dulled, uh, are, are, they do not get any major impulse. No. Here is a secret. What is meant by quietening the senses is actually not reacting mentally to sensory input. Yes, first of all, Neutral, quiet environment. Non-exciting environment. So a meditation room, uh, a temple is good. But after that, even then there will be sounds. And you notice when you are meditating, you become much more sensitive to the slightest disturbance also. You are meditating. And the person next to you meditating, if that person snores, then that your whole mind will be occupied with that person snoring now. The mind becomes more sensitive. So the the strong uh, principle to drive into the mind is not to react to sensory inputs whatever sound comes Um, there's a story it's a sufi story of a man a muslim who was praying and uh, this girl who was going to meet her beloved she uh, ran or looking for a child whatever she ran past him and not knowing that this man was praying So her cloth brushed against him. This man was very annoyed. And then the next time she came back on that path, the man scolded her. Don't you know, I'm praying to Allah, I'm praying to God. Aren't you ashamed? You're not even um, aware of what's going on around you. And then the girl said, I was thinking of my child. And I didn't even see you. I was so focused on that. You are thinking of God. How can you be so aware of so many different things in the world? <laughs> that somebody ran past you and slightly the clock brushed your cloth. How are you so aware? Uh, yes. Now the mind has to be, uh, you know, the principle is don't react to sense inputs. The moment the mind doesn't react to sense inputs, the senses are quieted. You see, it, it is, senses are in that sense, in, in that sense, innocent because. They're just processing information. They're collecting information. Um, it's the mind which gets disturbed. When the information comes in, we see something, hear something, smell something, and a touch, and that disturbs the mind. That throws the mind, just like a lake. You throw a, a stone into a lake, it sets out ripples. So the mind gets disturbed. Now, make an effort not to let those disturbances spread in the mind. You will see after some time the sensory inputs don't don't matter. In Buddhist meditation, vipassana camps and all, I'm told that uh, you know you sit for long hours and in the initial phase, a lot of disturbances will come. Although it's a very quiet environment, your body itself will set up so many disturbances. So you're asked to make an effort not to keep on reacting. There's a little scratch, you scratch that, the little ache, you start adjusting for that ache. Don't do it as far as possible, don't react to um, sense inputs. And the amazing thing that will happen is, those things will go away after some time. Uh, You make a breakthrough, you push through that, you make a breakthrough. It will not disturb you after some time. It's a kind of little bit of mischief that if you have a child or something a little child uh, to attract attention, they will be up to all sorts of antics. If you don't respond to it, after some time, the child will go to sleep. We will we'll get get tired of all of that. So, that is the way you want handle the senses. This is called Pratyahara. Pratyahara. Ahara means to take in, to eat. We're basically, not only eating food, we are eating the world through our senses. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Pratyahara, not to eat, to pull back from eating with the five senses. If you don't do that, there is no possibility of meditation. Now, the next is manasab. The mind itself should be quietened. Not only one must not react to the inputs from the senses. Remember, already it's a quiet place, a meditation room, a temple, some place, which is not disturbing. I'm not asking you, they're not making impossible demands of us that in the middle of a cinema hall or in Times Square, you have to sit down. And, that's also possible. That's also entirely possible, but not in the beginning. In the beginning, you have a good environment, like a meditation room or a temple or something. In a good environment also, you have to make an effort to withdraw from the senses. Uh, Don't react to the senses. That's level one. But once you have done that, you're not reacting to the senses, another level of mischief arises. The mind in itself. um, Who was that? The one who wrote um, the, the quote. I remember the quote from a beautiful poem, epic poem. The quote is this, the mind by itself uh, can create a hell of heaven and a heaven of hell. Milton, yes. So, Paradise Lost, in fact. I think maybe it's from Paradise Lost, probably. So, mind in itself, but the mind in its own place can can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. Um, Now, the mind will start doing that. Creating a heaven or a hell. Hell is our anxieties, our problems, uh, it will tell you, why are you wasting your time sitting quietly? You have lots of things on your to do list. Get up and get busy. Uh, or it will create a heaven. It's a wonderful, lost in a world of uh, expectations. This can happen, that can happen. Oh, you know, looking forward to a wonderful time or looking back to a wonderful time which you had. Heaven or hell being created by the mind. Stop that. That is the silence of the mind. Stop doing that. Then the third level. Then what will happen is the intellect, buddhischa Vicheshtati. So the intellect which was trying to do all these Vedantic inquiries, not the body because of these reasons, you know, the body is changing, I am the unchanging experience of the changing body, the body is an object, I am the um, experiencer of the object, the body is not conscious, I am conscious of the body. So many intellectual you know, inquiries were being conducted. Stop that now. Now you have what you want. You know where you are going. So stop the movements of the intellect. That cannot be stopped. The still and luminous intellect, it cannot be stopped until the senses are quietened and the mind is quietened. Until you don't react to external inputs, there are no external inputs uh, from the senses and there are no internal inputs from the mind also. Then there is no more food for the intellect to chew upon. And the Vedantic inquiry which is going, you have completed it, stop it now. Okay. Vivekananda says, when the book of the mind opens, then you can dismiss with other books, which means you have clarity within. You don't need to go over a shloka. What did that shloka say? What did um, the Vivek say? What did Anubhuti say? No, no need anymore. Let the intellect be still. Then in that intellect, still senses, stilled mind, still intellect, the truth shines of itself this is basically is recommending meditation yogic meditation here you can see the relation to yoga chitta vritti nirodha the definition of meditation in patanjali yoga yoga chitta vritti nirodha yoga is samadhi what is samadhi stilling the activities of the mind stilling the activities of the mind and for that a whole technology is given uh, of practices. So eightfold, eight-limbed yoga, Ashtanga yoga. There is the preliminary uh, purificatory practices, the ethical practices, yama and niyama. Yama and niyama. They are all of the nature of quietening. See, untruth. We tell untruth only when the mind is disturbed. As I said, terror or temptation. So against untruth, to quietening the untruth, the impulse to untruth is truth. Quietening the impulse to anger is ahimsa, non-violence. Quietening the impulse to sense indulgence is brahmacharya, is sense control, celibacy, sense control. Quietening the impulse for acquisition, this this grabbing from the world is asteya and aparigraha. These are the five limbs. Asteya means non stealing. Aparigraha means non acceptance, non accumulation. So notice all of these five, we take them as moral practices, but they're all of the nature of stealing, quietening. Um, so, yama and niyama, they're essential for uh, moral purification. Then the third component is um, asana, physical uh, stillness. Then there is Pranayama, breath, control of the breath, rhythmic deep breathing. Why? There are many, many techniques, the whole range of techniques. You can always learn many of them from your local yoga instructor. Why this breathing? Because um, in order to control something very subtle, you need something which you can control. Directly trying to control the mind is like trying to control wind. Arjuna says this to Krishna in the sixth chapter. Vayureva Sudushkaram. Trying to control the mind in meditation, oh Krishna, as you're telling me, is impossible. It's like trying to control the wind. Now there is a way. In, be- in between the physical body and the mind is breath, prana. And breath we can control. So prana, breath control techniques are there. How, what good will it do? Because the breath is connected to you in the, in the, in the physical body and to you as the mind. In between the breath is connected to both. So by quietening the catching hold of the breath, one can eventually quieten the mind you know, when very excited angry you'll see breathing changes very dull breathing changes very focused breathing changes so but and by changing the breath one can focus the mind that is pranayama that is the um, fourth component the fifth component is pratyahara which is where he has started this verse controlling the senses controlling the senses means first of all quietening and second Mental level, not reacting. Not reacting. Then the next level is the last three stages of uh, the final stages of meditation. Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi. Dharana is focus. Dhyana is meditation. Samadhi is complete absorption. The deepest level of meditation, which is what he has mentioned here. Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi. So eight limbs, all of it is, you can see that that is what's indicated in this verse. Sri Ramakrishna gave some wonderful examples of uh, how to meditate. So it's like a parable, but it's very useful when you're trying to meditate. So he gives the example of, um, uh, he says, the village women going to get water from the well. So they go in a group with their water pots and they draw water and they walk back. And there are multiple pots of water, water pots. So there's a big pot and the medium pot, and the small pot, all on their heads, uh, one above the other. And Sri Ramakrishna remarked, how careful they are, so that it doesn't fall down. If it falls, the pots will be smashed. And yet, he says, they are walking and talking with each other. They are walking and talking with each other, you know, exchanging the gossip of the village, or whatever. But, First and primary concern is the water pot should not come tumbling down from their heads. They're full of audit. We 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 won't manage it. It will be so difficult for us. For them, it's second nature. But the primary attention is on the water pots. Similarly, the primary attention should be the alertness that there should be no turbulence from the senses, no turbulence from the mind, and no activity of the intellect at that level. That kind of attention. Remember the women carrying the water pots. Another example he gave uh, was um, of the um, balance. You know, if you go to even now in a village shop, um, whatever you want, so they will, like maybe rice, they will put what you select on one pan and on the other pan, they will put the weights. So the balance, um, uh, you know. Now, Sri Ramakrishna, he says, you notice, whichever side is heavier, that that pan goes down. Now on the one side is the world, the other side is God. And what happens is the, our, the mind is weighed so much on the world side that the mind, it always goes down on that side. So you need to put more weight on this side. How do you put more weight on this side? Meditation, prayer, japa, whatever. So that your mind becomes... Pull to this side, towards the god side. That's another example. Um, there is another example he gave, but that's a very, uh, I mean, sort of slightly outdated because you don't see that in villages anymore. Threshing the grain. So the um, lady of the house, she is with her foot, she is using, you know, pedaling the machine, the, the thresher. And with another hand, she is shoving the grain into the thresher. And she's holding the baby at her waist with another hand. And she's talking with the customer who has come, or to whom she's selling and she's telling him, you owe so much from the last time. And so all of this is going on. But Sri Ramakrishna says that she's first and foremost careful that her hand doesn't get crushed under the, the pile of the, the movement of the thresher. It'll, it'll be crushed if she doesn't take it out in time. So that's first and foremost and then everything else is going on. how to keep the mind on God in the middle of activities, let alone meditation in the middle of activities. So he has these all these wonderful um, uh, examples for uh, keeping the mind on God. so for example, keeping your mind on the water pot what would what would you what would be in place of the water pot? it could be holding the mantra in your mind in the middle of activities. try it you can hold the mantra in your mind in the, in the midst of most activities. And if those act, some activities are there which require full concentration and you cannot keep the mind on the mantra, Sri Ramakrishna gives an example for that also. The compass needle. He says, the compass needle always swings around to a north-south direction. So you, you flick the needle, it will go around and again swing back to the north-south direction. So your mind, it swings around because of the pressures of the world. But the moment the pressure is let off, it will again swing back towards God. So make your mind like that. The compass needle. These are wonderful examples which Sri Ramakrishna gives. Just one more thing I would like to add here before going on is that this Vedantic meditation, this yogic meditation is difficult. So what is done is uh, Ishta Devata, deity meditation. Uh, I came to know that they do it in Tibetan Buddhism also. There is a deity meditation. Now, I am the pure consciousness, the Atman, which I have studied from the Upanishads, and I know I'm not the body, not the mind, and the witness consciousness, but to still the mind there is very difficult. If you try it, you'll end up probably with a headache. So, Or if you try it, you know the mind will either flicker, go here and there, or if you force it, it'll go to sleep. It'll go to sleep. Uh, that's why in Vedanta class, you see some spectacular yawns. Mm-hmm. If you are a Vedanta teacher especially and see all the class, you, do, you can see some huge yawns coming. <laughs> so uh, that, That's because it can be yawn-inducing, especially when you try to meditate on that. Either restlessness or sleep. Now, what is done is, instead of trying to meditate on the pure subject, which is admittedly difficult, what is done is try to s- still the mind on the form of the chosen deity. So it could be Rama, it could be Krishna, it could be Narayana, or Durga, Kali, Ramakrishna. W- w- the way your guru has taught you, the deity and the mantra of the deity. Now the mind has something to catch on to. If the mind catches on to something in the world, either a sense input or something it gets from its own memories, then it'll be you will be caught in the world. But if you catch on to the deity and the mantra, that uh, is the, that though that name and form does not obscure the nature of the Atman. Normally the worldly names and forms divert us from the Atman. They pull our mind out into the world. Oh, uh, but this divine name and form uh, does not obscure the nature of the Atman. That's why Sri Ramakrishna said that uh, in Bengali, Atma Shetar, Ishta, Shetar Atma. Whoever is your Ishta Devata, which has been given by the Guru, it, that is the, your Atman with this particular name and form. It, you, when you are doing that exercise, it is not different from Vedantic meditation. It is Vedantic meditation and it will again lead you to that non-dual realization in time. He carries on with the discussion on meditation next. Eleventh mantra. Tam-yogam-iti-manyante indriya dharanam Apramattas-tada-bhavati Yogo hi yo The English translation is they consider that keeping of the senses steady as yoga, one becomes vigilant at that time, for yoga is subject to growth and decay. Okay. Yoga is subject to growth and decay. This is an important point here. What he means here is meditation, even samadhi comes and goes. Focus difficult to attain. Once you attain it, very easy to lose again. So, yoga is subject to growth and decay. Focus, concentration deepens and loosens also. Deepens and loosens. It comes and goes. Enlightenment doesn't come and go. Once ignorance is removed, you realize you are Brahman. You, the pure consciousness, you are always there. Not only that, you realize you are there even before enlightenment. As pure consciousness. You are there in enlightenment. You just come to see it. And not only that. Yes, Advaita Vedanta, as Advaita Vedanta insists you are that pure consciousness, unflickering consciousness, even when the mind is flickering. Even when the mind is not in Samadhi. Even when the mind is engaged and active in the world. Even when the mind is upset. Even then, you are this unlimited consciousness. It is true. But in order to access that, in order to reach that enlightenment, uh, this uh, unflickering mind is necessary. And for that, one needs to know that this concentration is difficult to achieve. And once achieved, it can be lost. So the remedy for that is apramatta. Pramatta means um, uh, flickering mind. Apramatta is mindfulness. You know the Buddhists, Theravada Buddhists, Tibetan Buddhists—they have developed this mindfulness to a very exact science. A lot of techniques of mindfulness they have developed. Um, so here he's saying literally, "apramatta" means mindfulness. Prama, pramada, error, flickering. This is an old Sanskrit saying: "Pramada vai mittyo." Um, error is death. So the error can come in many forms at the um, deepest level the error is i do not know i am pure consciousness i am body mind that's error deepest level the next level of error is flickering mind i don't i don't uh, keep focus i don't i am not uh, at peace i am not silent flickering mind the final level of error is moral error because of thinking of myself as body mind because of scattered attention um, and i give in to you know, sensory impulses and do what I know to be wrong and which I will regret later on. So that is also error. All three levels. These are all called pramada, and they are called this is equivalent to death. It's spiritual death. Pramada vai So that sentence, eternal vigilance, vigilance is the price of liberty. Even spiritual liberty, it requires vigilance. So this apramatta is vigilant. In this state, yoga defined as samadhi. Shankaracharya says this is viyoga. See, this is a play on words. Yoga means joining. But viyoga means separation. So here he says this is actually separation. You need to step back from the world, from the body, from the senses, from the mind, even from the intellect into the fastness, into the security of your real nature to get a glimpse of that, to stay there for a while and um, so that you know that you are you are it. Even the phrase that you stay there for a while is full of error. Because you stay there anyway, all the time. But the mind convinces us that, oh, I was there in Samadhi, but now I've lost it again. So here he is uh, talking about the practice of mindfulness. Why mindfulness? Because focus can be gained and lost. Therefore, one has to be mindful. Uh, Shankaracharya. He says, pravritti Bhavati So this mindfulness is he says is a preliminary practice and goes on to up to samadhi. Why? Because in samadhi, when the senses are stilled, when the mind is stilled and the intellect is not active, there's no question of error. Error is not possible. Uh, Flickering is not possible. Already they have been stilled. But to achieve that state, mindfulness is necessary from the very beginning. What is the beginning? From the stilling of the body, stilling of the senses, stilling of the mind, and then quietening of the intellect. Mindfulness, mindfulness. Every moment, mindfulness. Look at Sri Ramakrishna's teaching about the women carrying the water pots on their head. It's actually mindfulness, moment to moment to moment, careful mindfulness and a habitual mindfulness. That's the beauty of that example. The women have made it habitual. They can carry those, make this very difficult task of carrying multiple water pots balanced on their heads, mindfully, and yet relaxed in the middle of activities of the world. That's a really good example. Hmm. He uses a nice term here, Shankaracharya. He says, in order to prevent the decay of meditation, What is the decay of meditation? The loss of focus. You have carefully built up a stillness and it is always uh, subject to uh, loss. In order for that, mindfulness is necessary. I'll just add here, in the beginning, we will notice these four stages of meditation. Stage one is focus. Whatever meditation you're doing, you may be meditating on the breath You may be meditating on Ishta Devata, the chosen deity with the mantra, or even trying the Advaitic meditation of not body, not mind, witness, consciousness. Whatever it is, stage one will always be focus. We make an effort to focus. Stage one. Stage two, distraction. Stage three, wandering mind. Stage four, you recognize the wandering and bring it back. So these four stages, stage one, focus, stage two, there will be a moment of distraction. Something will come in. Mindfulness will prevent that. But if you are not mindful, it will happen most of the time. Distraction comes in, then the result of the distraction will be the mind will move after that distraction, wandering mind, stage three. And that can last for minutes, several minutes. And then suddenly we realize, stage four comes, suddenly we realize, oh, it's wandering. I have to think about, I have to focus on the breath or I have to focus on the mantra or I have to focus on not body, not mind, witness, consciousness. And you bring it back again. Again, it will be lost. So this is the four stages in which it goes through. This is called the decay of awareness or decay of meditation, which Shankaracharya mentions to prevent that mindfulness is the weapon. Um, all right. One important comment here and then we will see the questions. What is the role of meditation in Advaita Vedanta? It's useful at two different levels. One is um, as a preparation for Advaita, uh, for Shravana, Manana and Even before Shravana, Manana and one needs a focused mind to attend to the teaching. There's no use going to a teaching on Vedanta and not listening. It just goes through one, as the teachers say in India, you know, it goes through one year and comes out through the other year, but it doesn't stay in there. So, uh, focused listening requires meditation. Uh, this is in the preliminaries of Vedanta, the fourfold qualifications uh, Viveka, Vairagya, six treasures, and uh, mumukshutva, desire for liberation, discernment, dispassion, the sixfold treasure or sixfold discipline, and desire for liberation. In the six-fold discipline, if you remember, there is Shama, quietness of the mind. Dhamma, control of the senses. Then, uh, Titiksha, spiritual fortitude, holding on to your practice. And then, Uparati, withdrawal, from too much engagement with the world. Then, Samadhana, focus. That focus, uh, their meditation is useful. So, if you have a mantra, a med- deity meditation, or if you do a breath, following the breath, whatever your meditation technique, it develops focus. And this is a preliminary for entering into Vedanta. A very focused, alert listening. We are focused. My mind is not diverted. I am listening to you and then it falls asleep. That is no good. Or it's thinking of a hundred different things. The intense desire to check my phone. No, that's no good also. So focused listening not sleepy, not distracted, and holding on. It's difficult. We have this attention span problem, you know, 15, 20 minutes, and listening or studying for hours together is difficult, actually. So for that, preliminary meditation is necessary. That's stage one that meditation is required. Then at an advanced level, um, as the ninth verse said, listening to the teachings Having considered those teachings well, thinking it through, getting the clarity and understanding how I am not the body, how I am not the ever-changing mind, how all of these are appearing to me, the consciousness. Having come to this conclusion, the ability to stay with that, stay with that conclusion, to stay with that clarity, this is called Nididhyasana. The Vedantic meditation or non-dual meditation. At this level also meditation is necessary. And the... Um, technique technology is the same you need to sit you need to regulate the breathing you need to withdraw from the external world dharana dhyana samadhi focus meditation and then samadhi you know, There's so much to it the sāvikalpa samadhi the nirvikalpa samadhi and all of that and as uh, Gamiranji Maharaj noted even that meditation the higher meditation that's also not the goal it is uh, a means to the goal what is the goal? aham brahmasmi I am Brahman, that realization. All right. Let's look at the comments. Sri Ram says, Swamiji is pure mind is equal to zero ego. Mala, Vikshepa and Avarana. Yes, ultimately pure mind will be that. Mala, Vikshepa, Avarana means impurity of mind, that is desires. Uh, mala literally means dirt. Vikshepa, restlessness. Avarana means uh, covering, veiling. All three removed. Then Shiva Priya asks, when bad power politics, bad politics tries to disturb or stop any unselfish charity work. In that case, it's obvious the mind gets unsettled as your morality, unselfishness is challenged. Isn't it obvious mind will be restless? Is it impure then? No. It's not impure. But one must have the ability. Vivekananda says this ability to fill the bucket and empty the bucket, to attach and detach at will. This power. I can throw myself into a work and yes. It's a good work, selfless work, face a lot of problems, mind gets disturbed about it, you work through it and try to get it done. And at the same time, once it's over, shut the door. Shut out the world. One Swami used to say, you put on your chest, mentally visualize, no admission. No admission to what? To the world. Anybody in the world, no matter how important. Any activity. These next 15 minutes, these next 30 minutes, 45 minutes are mine, I and God alone. Uh-huh. that's it and nobody in the world that cap- capacity must be there Shiva Priya says in Vipassana meditation hall there are 100 people together meditating as they ask you not to react to any silent sound of breathing, coughing, I did it 5-6 years back no exposure to the Vedanta class so thought, what kind of meditation hall is this? yes, <laughs> true in meditating with others even the little sounds they make can be quite disturbing because it brings to your mind immediately that person it's not just a sound uh, because sound re- leads to a vritti in the mind. So you think of that person now coughing and the mind goes there. But you have to, it's a good practice to stop that reaction. And you'll see after some time it will settle down. You become even conscious and irritated at just the heavy breathing of others. <laughs> Every little disturbance created by others creates annoyance towards others. Good practice. Remember, the problem is in there, not really out there. It's a pretty silent place. Maybe 50 people, 100 people are sitting there comparatively to the world outside. The place is a silent place and it's a good place for meditation. Let 100 people sit. I remember one beautiful description of during, from the Buddha's time. So uh, there was a time in the afternoon when the Buddha would himself address the assembled monks. And lay people were also welcome. So people from the nearby town would come uh, and sit And listen, so one king or rich person who came left an account and he says, quite apart from the teaching that the Buddha gave, he says, I was most impressed by this gathering, hundreds of monks sitting around the Buddha in utter stillness. No one sneezed, coughed, or even moved a little bit. That he says was most impressive for me. So, she says, what kind of meditation hall is this? It's true. Here in our Vedanta society, we have creaky steps. Somebody said, you have the creakiest meditation hall in the world. <laughs> Anybody who goes up and down the steps, you can hear it creaking. Andrew says, isn't Brahman consciousness higher than unity? Unity higher than beginning self-realization. All these different terms used then used in Vedanta. Mm. Uh, let's put it this way. Upon making the breakthrough, one realizes that at the heart of all this diversity, there lies oneness. That is Brahman. And that is you. That oneness is your inner reality. This, at that level, this entire universe is one reality. Everybody is, uh, is one with you. or You are one with everybody and everything. So that is that oneness. You're not thinking that everybody is one. You are not thinking that we are all one. It it's not, is not a thought at all. You can let go of all thinking at that level. Parul says, Will the Guru give the mantra Diksha as well suggest Ishtadeva to meditate upon? But do I visualize the deity to calm my mind? Can I continue or obey my Guru once I have been granted the grace? Yes, the Guru will suggest the deity and the mantra. Uh, but if you have a particular preference, before the Diksha, you should talk with the Guru. That maybe... In my family or in my community, I have practiced or in my tradition, I have practiced this for a long time and I would like to continue. Suppose you are meditating on Shiva and you would like to continue meditating on Shiva. So before the in, in, uh, initiation, you have to ask the Guru. Whether the Guru will be willing to give a Shiva mantra or not, that, uh, it all depends. Ashish says, when the eyes are open, seeing Brahman with open eyes, The yoga of meditation of stilling the mind sounded like it would illuminate witness consciousness. However, to see Brahman in all objects, the practice to be done in a state of stillness with eyes open. No. This is for making the breakthrough and realizing I am Brahman. Seeing Brahman in everybody with open eyes is not a practice. Brahman is everywhere. How do you see the water in um, all the waves with open eyes? You see it because you know that it's water. Knowledge tells you that. With open eyes, you will see exactly what everybody else is with open eyes is seeing. You will see people and dogs and cats and the sky and the earth and buildings. Exactly like that. But that all of it is Brahman is clear to you because you have, you have made that breakthrough. You realize that Brahman alone is all of this. It's not that you're practicing seeing Brahman in uh, all beings. Um, yeah. So this is important. Uh, I'll repeat what was said here. Is that to become enlightened, first we have to focus on ourselves. And see that I am not the body, not the mind, I am the witness consciousness. And get this clarity and use meditation to still yourself in this. If not this, then at least still yourself in the uh, samadhi of Ishta Devata. And then next, this witness consciousness which I have realized myself to be, this is the infinite Brahman. After we have done that, we will realize when we come back to this world, we will realize that whatever we see, whoever we see, are nothing but Brahman. It's that same reality. You can't jump ahead. You can't skip this step. Nilavara says, "Someone who is initiated by mantra diksha is it okay to do vipassana?" You can. In our tradition, there is the no, uh, you know, obligation not to follow some any other technique, as long as you do your mantra japa morning and evening. One can, um, at least the minimum, one can take up any other kind of practice. If you find vipassana helpful, why not? Peter says, when one sits down to meditate, who is it that sits in meditation? Is it the body or is it pure? If you physically sit down, the body sits down physically, obviously. Quieten down, the senses quieten down. Still it, the mind is stilled. You are pure consciousness. But be careful when you use language. Don't say that, oh, I can't sit. I am pure consciousness. When you ask someone asks you, please sit down. Say, no, I can't sit. I am pure consciousness. You mean that a body should sit down. Don't use language like that. Just say, yeah, I am sitting down. <laughs> All right. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ramakrishna Krishna Rupa, Namastu